0: And welcome to Impactful Open Source, the podcast where we talk about how open source has gone from someone's head and maybe a few lines in a terminal screen into making a real impact on the world at large, whether this happened through enterprise or through universities, governments, cities, you name it. Whatever has made an impact through open source is what we're here to talk about. We're also here to talk about grand vision for open source, which is why I'm really excited about this guest we have on today, Stephen Jacobs is a professor of Interactive Media. Was that correct, Stephen? Interactive Games and Media. I'm a game prof. (laughs) A game prof at Rochester in upstate New York. He's also the director of Open at RIT. What is Open at RIT?
1: So Open at RIT is the university's equivalent of an open source program's office. We are among the first universities to do this. There are a couple. Hopkins was the first. There are other folks who have some in process. I don't know where they are. We got blessed and made official in August of this year. And we're calling ourselves an open programs office rather than an open source programs office because people at the university are involved in open hardware, open data, open science, in addition to FOSS and... I didn't want them to look at the name of the entity and go, well, we don't do software. We can't play. No, we want to lift everybody's boat, all the boats, all the time. So we are an open programs office, not an open source programs
0: office. Which I think makes a lot of sense, given your background as an interactive games and media professor. It's not just a computer science right place. Right. This is for all sorts of things.
1: I am not anything that resembles a computer scientist. I am a, by academic training, I am a film professor gone horribly wrong. And somehow, despite the fact that I never got past algebra two in high school, and I don't have a PhD, I am a professor in one of the largest colleges of computing in the world. So figure it out. None of it makes
0: sense. Good job. So tell me a bit about how you got into open source, because you are interested in open source as a concept by itself. How did that start?
1: I I did some side coding here and there. I did some computer operations for pay. I taught introductory programming, you know, so I I have like extremely low chops in this. I tell my students I can program my way out of a paper bag as long as it's really wet. And if I've got a (laughs) couple of books by my side, I can get through. But that said, I got into open source when the One Laptop Per Child rolled out. And I have always been engaged in and engaging my students in impactful work. So, you know, especially when you're in college, you have the opportunity to do work for passion, not for pay. When you get out of school and you're going to have these, this massive debt, so this is the time to use your tech chops to be able to do some good for the world and make it a better place. So when OLPC rolled out, I was like, cool, I'm going to have my students make educational games for people who use this computer. And I knew about open source, and what I knew about open source was that's kernel guys, and I'm not a kernel coder by any stretch of the imagination. I, I script entertainment creation languages. That's what I do. So, great. Here's an opportunity to have my students do educational games for this community. And then the fact that it was open software and open hardware was how I started to get involved in various open ecosystems. The first thing I did before we offered the course was to form a users group for the OLPC in Rochester so people who knew what they were doing could actually help me build the course and help backstop my lack of technical chops. And I first got involved with Fedora and Red Hat when we were trying to go to the labs and say, hey, you know, we're gonna put all this open source stuff on your network so we can develop for these computers. And they're like, I know you're not. You're not putting any of that stinking open source stuff on my tightly controlled academic lab, sir. I mentioned this problem to my users group and one of the folks in the users group said, oh, you know, OLPC gave Red Hat a hundred laptops to give away to people who will help build the ecosystem because Fedora was the OS underlying sugar on the OLPC. And she said, let me just put you in touch with Red Hat. And Red Hat drop shipped me 25 OLPCs, and we didn't have to touch the network. We gave an XO to every student to take home for the semester and we started going. And from there on, I suddenly started evolving into an open source professor as well as a games professor. The kids said, that was cool, can we do another class? And I'm like, sure, we'll figure out a second class. And then RIT is what's called a cooperative education school, which means that the students have to have full-time paid internships to graduate. And they said, can we keep working on our projects for Sugar and OLPC as a co-op? And I said, well, let me figure it out. And we figured that out. We ran some hackathons and we did some other work. And then they said could we get a minor in this? And I said, I guess we'll figure out how to make a minor. So that's pretty much how this whole thing has evolved is the students asking me to give them more opportunities. And as a professor who's not a traditional research professor, I didn't come to the university with this is my research agenda that I want my students to help support. And I was like, what do the students want to do? Let's help them make it better. So that's how we got to be an open-source program within a university. And then this move to becoming open at RIT and an open programs office started at the last OSCON that was held (laughs) face-to-face, Yeah, where I bumped into Jacob of Moss Labs, and he said, hey, the guys at Hopkins are doing an open-source office, and I said, hmm, that's interesting. So a couple months later, I went to the the vice president of research, who's always been a fan of what I've been doing in open source. And I said, there's this open source program office at academia thing starting to happen. And I think it would be good for us to do that. If I wrote you a white paper and I didn't even get to finish, he said, yes, I will pass it on to the higher ups at the university. So, yes. And then they came back to me and said, this white paper looks interesting. Have you run a university-wide meeting to gauge interest? And I said, I don't get to run university-wide meetings. I'm just a guy. And he said, okay, fine say that my office is sponsoring it, try to get something going. And much to my surprise, I knew we would get a good response. What I didn't expect was that response would come not just from the College of Computing and the College of Science, but from 37 different units across campus. When I sent out an email that said, who wants to talk about open source, open hardware, open software, blah, blah, blah the library, the sponsored research office, the IT office within the university, every college, multiple departments across every college, not just computer science, but college of the arts. We have the National Technical Institute for the Deaf on campus. So we have roughly a thousand deaf students taking specialized courses for associate degrees and then moving on to full bachelor's degrees if they want to on campus. People from everywhere said they wanted to get involved. And that moved the university to then have me work with those faculty to do some homework and write a document about what they would want such an entity to do, and then have me write an official charter. And then we got the charter approved. Then we became real.
0: So Rochester is a pretty large university. You have around 20,000 students, Yeah, something like 4,000 active faculty, according to Wikipedia. Yep. One of the things I'm curious about is what's the scale then of open at RIT? Do you have 10,000 students in it, two students in it, how does so it work?
1: The student entity, so that we have X number of students take the minor. And over the time that we've had the minor, we've had probably 30, 40 students take the minor. It's hard to take a minor in that it's five courses. And that when we originally scoped it, we scoped it at, you know, juniors and seniors only. Now that we've moved that back, there were also some issues about we went from quarters to semesters. And when you go from quarters to semesters, you lose the 30-year electives. But in terms of students who have participated in a what used to be Faucet RIT and is now Faucet Magic, which is the student piece that does the experiential education like the affinity group meetings and hackathons and stuff like that. There's that piece of the undergraduate or graduate experience. There's the opportunity to get co-ops and open source. And then there's the classes. So, And any of our students can come into that kind of life cycle anywhere. You can come to a hackathon and then take a class. You can come to a hackathon and then get involved with a co-op. You can get involved with a co-op or whatever it is and how much you want to do. So if you look at that over the time we've been doing it, that's hundreds of students who have been involved in that. Then open at RIT, that's the now the faculty and staff focused piece. After spending 12 years working with students, how can I do for our faculty and staff, what I've been doing for students. And that's why we have this open programs office. So the educational stuff for undergrad stays in the college academic environment. The affinity groups that I've been running under the faucet magic label now are kind of like a sister program that runs under the overall open source programs office, the OSPO open at RIT. So it's kind of an interlocking structure. Does that make sense?
0: A tiny bit. I'm curious about how the OSPO, such as it is, right? Open source program office works on a day to day basis. Um,
1: Well, we're just in startup mode. So, what I've done this semester is I have every college at a university, one to three or four times a semester, has an organizational meeting for everybody in the college. Hmm. So, I spent this semester introducing the office to faculty, staff, deans, chairs at those meetings. I met with the library. I met with the council of chairs, which is the provost's meeting for the academic folks. I worked with the Office of Sponsored Research to get us associate membership in the Linux Foundation and membership in the to-do group. We might be the first college that's a part of the to-do group. So, it's a lot of getting stuff going. The other piece of getting stuff going is that we have been awarded half a million dollars by the Alfred Peace Sloan Foundation to build a staff position and rotating opportunities for students for two years to essentially being something like an inner source consulting team for faculty and staff so that faculty and staff will be able to come to us and say, hey, I'm a contributor to Community X and they need help. Or, hey, I've spun up my own project and I need help. And the help that team is gonna provide is not software or hardware engineering or open data set creation that team is there to fill the other capacities required for open source right if you're going to have an impactful open source community you need the website you need the onboarding you need the recruitment you need the documentation you need the the production pipeline you need all of that stuff and academics who do open source you know they make their software or they work on their hardware project but they don't have time and or talent and/ or resources to do the rest of that stuff so the majority of academia based open work at least as far as the Sloan Foundation seems to think because they funded this is that, what happens is that a thing gets built, it gets put in a repo, one email goes out saying, hey, I built a thing, and then pff, yep. you know, nothing else happens because there's no infrastructure and no support to go beyond that. So the grand experiment that they've helped us start is, can we do better in academic open source if we provide these resources to these folks? And I'll know two years from now whether it worked or not. <laughs> but that's you know, great that's some that's, of the other great. stuff i've been doing is you got to work with hr to create the staff position you got to start trying to hire yep. the students for next semester so it's all been startup prep work next semester we'll try to get that team going next semester we'll start to try to build some professional development training for faculty because a third of the faculty who said we want to come to this meeting they were like i don't know how to get involved. Yeah. So, we've got to build stuff for them. We've also got to build stuff for the folks who are involved, but who have questions like, you know, I started this thing closed, I want to open it. How do I do that? Or, how do I create revenue to continue building this thing? Where do I find the resources? Or, you know, those kinds of larger questions. So, we want to identify existing content and or create our own to help level those people up as well. Literally today, I just had the first meeting with a bunch of people, the university administration side to say, hey, you know, we have an IP policy, but it wasn't really written with open work in mind. Mm -hmm. We don't really have any published guidelines for how folks can put things into the open if they want to. We haven't looked at what the benefits and responsibilities are of doing it. We need to start thinking through this stuff. We have people doing it all the time. You know, it's not like nobody at the university has ever written a line of open source code before. We have lots (laughs) of people doing lots of stuff, but we need to upgrade our institutional policies and procedures to reflect that. So we had that first conversation about who needs to be involved in that process and what are our questions as a university we want answered, and how can I have folks at my advisory board for open at RIT and/or folks in the to-do group who aren't on my advisory board help us make those steps? There are lots of policies and procedures out there from other universities. You know, it's not like nobody's ever thought about this, but you have to kind of do a, a bottom-up and a top-down approach. Bottom-up. What do these other university policies and procedures look like? Top down, where do we want to come down as a university? You know, how do we as an institution want to balance rights, responsibilities, and benefits of putting something out open?
0: So that's awesome from the policy side. It sounds like you're doing a lot of work, getting people together, making sure you have a large enough tent to fit everyone, and then laying down groundwork so that, faculty, staff, collaborators, eventually, hopefully grad students and undergrads can work together on open source projects. One of the questions I have is, what projects happen at RIT right now? What collaborations do you already know of that you think will blossom under this?
1: I want to address that in a second, but I want to address the student piece because for us, the student piece is really interesting. Hmm. RIT has been a very progressive institution around student IP. So, at most universities, the university owns your IP no matter what. They own your homework, they own anything you do in a lab, etc. At RIT, students own their own IP, unless they've been funded by the university on a grant or they've got a student job that they're working on. if they want to create, for example, a startup game studio, and build the first game in our labs. We don't own any of that. That's theirs. So another interesting piece of policy and procedure at RIT is we have three different constituencies and we got to balance What do we do about students? Because they're going to be different than what we do about faculty. Faculty are always kind of a, a gray area because if your research is producing software, But the university says you're an employee, they kind of sort of own your software they kind of don't depending on how much of it is research, whether it's patentable or whatever. And then you've got your IT staff who are straight up employees and you absolutely own everything that they do. So there's this kind of three-headed creature we've got to figure out. Now, what's happening at RIT? All kinds of stuff. We have a bunch of people in the open data space. We have, strangely enough, in the College of Liberal Arts, our natural language processing stuff happens in the College of Liberal Arts, not in the College of Computing, College of Science. They're doing work in that space. Like most universities, we hopped on board to do things around masks and 3D printing and stuff for COVID. We have a, a faculty member at software engineering who has an open source computing museum where he keeps all of these, not, not a computing museum, but, but essentially like a bug museum or a security museum where he tracks all of the historical issues there. I have faculty who are doing accessibility in open source. I've got faculty who have bots that try to go through your repos and fix problems before they start in your coding. Yeah. I'm part of a team that is doing stuff around K through 2 deaf literacy, where we got funded to create an open source, essentially a rapid publishing web platform for sign language materials. So we're essentially distributing open content storybooks that get uploaded with multiple versions of sign languages and multiple versions of textual languages, because in many places, there is more than one sign language, just like there is more than one spoken language. You think about India, and they have tens, if not hundreds of dialects. Well, that happens on the sign language level as well. So that content is open. That platform is open, The platform we built, and we're going to fork it and repurpose it. For different types of educational materials. And I'd like to be able to fork it for disaster information as well. You know, yeah. so we're doing all kinds of things, but we don't know what we're doing. And we're no different than, than Johns Hopkins or any other university. If you go to any university and say, are your faculty doing stuff in open source, open data, open hardware, blah, blah, blah? They'll say, yes. And They'll say, can you give us an inventory of everything that's going on? And they'll say, oh, God, no. We have no idea. So <laughs> one of the things that both Saeed at, at Johns Hopkins and me at RIT are going to try to do is do that discovery. That's one of the challenges, right? Because you're not in a strictly commercial enterprise where you can say, the legal office and the CIO say, you must register your stuff and you do your stuff. Academia is mushy. So we can ask real nice, (laughs) we can suggest it's in everybody's best interest, you know, that if you tell me this stuff, then just like the Fortune 1000 companies, I can go out and talk about our impact on the open ecosystem and and how we're good community members. and, And we have academic certifications where we get brownie points if we're good contributors to open source. And we're much more attractive to grant funders and foundations if we're good players. So... If you guys do this, you know, it's there's enlightened self-interest. There's benefits in telling me what you're doing. But who knows how many of them will or not? That's the challenge
0: It is the challenge. And good luck with that. That's a problem that we all have. I also have that one. So run across that before changing tack a little bit. One of the things I've noticed talking to you now is, again, you're very good at connecting people and talking to different departments and making sure that everyone sort of comes in the same game. You're weirdly placed as a professor of interactive game and media, right? Most OSPOs I, I feel like should start in probably the computer science department, maybe libraries. Do you think that it's an advantage for you in being a non research based professor and that your particular placement has really helped you along with this?
1: So my academic history and RIT's academic history are equally weird. There's a category of colleges and universities called teaching universities, where research is not the driver. When I came to RIT, RIT was a teaching university. It has made this shift over the past, say, 15 years to work its way up to being an R2 research university. The whole university has been through the same evolution I have. And so it kind of matches. I think in all of the academic OSPOs that are starting, we're going to be different in lots of different ways than industry OSPOs. But one of the ways we're going to be different is our offices aren't going to drive policy and procedure, and we're not going to drive compliance. We're going to go to the people who have those positions in the university and say, hey, these are things we need to think about as a university or these are things we need to codify better if we're a university lots of universities unlike RIT have these revamped policies and procedures in place that are now more friendly to open but there's no office to kind of bring it all together it's like the tech transfer office did it or Sometimes the library does it or some other place. Sometimes the university may even have different policies and procedures based on the college or the institution. So there's no center of gravity. An enterprise, in a commercial enterprise like Google or Amazon or all those types of things, there's an implicit authority of being directly under the CIO or the CTO. In an academic environment, at least for some of us, we're going to be an information nexus and a network. And we're going to be in an advisory capacity, but we're not going to decide anything and we're not going to enforce anything. There's a legal team. There's a tech transfer office. There's the whole office of research, right? It's not like I'm going to roll in there and take over everybody's job. I, I wouldn't want to. And I don't have the background to. <laughs> I'm the guy who's going around say, you know, we should probably think about this. And if you wanna think about that, I have these connections external to the university where we can get advice on how to do a good job of this. You know, I can go, hey, faculty members, you know, you don't even know it, but after we've done all this kind of networking, we're seeing you work in the same kind of space. And don't you wanna to work together? I just, two days ago, I was in a meeting with a faculty in the College of Liberal Arts, who's a guy who's very interested in aspects of civics and political science and how they intersect with the day-to-day working of cities and with open source. And there's a guy in the College of Computing who runs something called iCivics, which is a for-profit business, but he does a lot of open source work, and he's got a similar interest the guy in the College of Liberal Arts is a new faculty member. He found the guy in the College of Science, I mean, the College of Computing, and then came to me and said, so if we wanted to combine our efforts, how would we do that within the institution? And would we set up our own thing? Or could we start doing stuff together under your umbrella? My answer was, of course, you can do either one. But if you want to start working under my umbrella, that's kind of one of the reasons why I'm here. List yourself as the digital or open civics initiative under open at RIT to start. And we'll see how that works out. And if it works out for you guys to stay there, great. And if it works out for you guys to eventually spin off your own thing, you know, God bless you. Good luck. So that kind of work that I hope to be able to accomplish more than I get to decide if faculty member was project new startup X is compliant with our current institutional policies. That's not my skill set, nor my interest
0: area. Fair, I think that applies probably to most people. One of the things I'm curious about is you mentioned you've been given a grant by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, which is pretty awesome. They had put out a digital infrastructure call a few months ago. Was this one of those? Or how did you pitch that to funders for an internal OSPO at RIT? So
1: the critical digital infrastructure program that you just referenced, the first round of that was Done by the Ford Foundation and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, primarily. They just finished the call for proposals process for their second iteration. Much of that is on very academic research on a wide variety of issues critical to digital infrastructure. And you can go to the Ford if you just type "critical digital infrastructure" and Ford into your favorite search engine you'll be able to hit a site that lists the first 13 projects they funded two years ago and they vary in things like what happens when money comes into an open source project what's the impact of working in the open for science these kinds of questions the proposal that i had funded by that program two years ago was a case study so there's this For Python programmers know about PyPI, which is the aggregator site and Forge and all those other things, for Python. And they had gone through a pretty drawn-out and challenging refactoring and reimagining of that project that they were calling warehouse. And so we said, we want to take a look, you know, we want to do a deep dive on how that worked and why it took so long, what the problems were and how they fixed it to see if there's a uh, less larger lessons to be learned for open source. So that's what we did. And then after that project was pretty much done and we were talking at RIT about spinning up open at RIT and the various areas of what it might or might not do for the university. I took a version of the 10-page paper that I'd written for the institution and distilled it down to about two or three pages. And I sent it to the gentleman who had funded me at the other two foundations. I said, hey, is there anything interesting here? And the Ford Foundation said, yeah, you know, we're mostly humanitarian impact and social justice and stuff like that. And this is interesting, but it doesn't ring any bells right away. And... A little bit later, the Sloan Foundation program officer said, yeah, I'm actually interested in this. Let's talk about the spread of everything you're trying to do. doesn't hit a sweet spot, but there are a couple things here that do. And let's talk about how you might construct that would be a proposal we would be willing to consider. And they were interested, especially since the research we'd done on that Ford and Sloan program the critical digital infrastructure program had been about the need for the other capacities outside of software engineering. The fact that you can't just be developers, you also have to be community. And that project was a little too much developer and not enough community. And so we pointed out the fact that to be successful, but God knows we weren't the only one. But you know, we said in this place, you know, you need to do this other stuff, we you don't go do anywhere. And the fact that I had been with my co-op program doing community for UNICEF and other NGO organizations, they said, we would be interested in you thinking about what it would mean to do what you've been doing for other people and do it for your own faculty and staff. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, let's think about that. And so that's how that kind of came out. Does that make sense?
0: It does make sense. And it's really useful actually, because just, you know, how do you get well connected to people at Ford and Sloan isn't relevant to most listeners. You know, it's not really that interesting, but how to pitch it is really useful and how to think about how you can get one set up at your own university. This podcast hopefully focuses on stories where open source can eventually make an impact or has made an impact. And here with OpenRIT, you're doing a really great job of showcasing how to actually corral people at university to have them work together so that the work they do is more effective in the long haul and that more connections are made and that they're stronger and deeper and that, you know, the great AI of open source rules the world, which is wonderful.
1: Right. So I try to talk to people outside of our own little sphere that you and I travel in about the fact that it's the open source way, right? That this is about loosening barriers, in terms of IP and in improving vectors of collaboration and doing what people need to lift those boats. And it's, you know, you and I are both involved in OSPO Plus that wants to do this for academia and for the civic sphere. And it's a challenge. Twice now I've had at an open at RIT event, either the group of folks we put together for the National Day of Civic Hacking, or for our own annual election night hackathon. We've had an election night hackathon for 10 years now. I've had the officer of the Rochester government who's in charge of our open data portal. And and she says, the problem with being a city open data portal is that everybody thinks you own all the data, you own all the information. But I don't know the police force's data, they do. There's lots of things that people think that I own that really the county owns and controls. The school data, I don't have the school data. The schools have the school data. And so, you know, trying at the civic level to clear the boards there is another different set of challenges than the academic one. You know, you know actually, Kate in the Rochester government told me that One of the American groups that's doing the best job of an open data portal is Montgomery County, Maryland, that they've got a really solid one, the people in that space, Hmm. that's who they look to, which I hadn't heard before. And since I grew up mostly in D.C. with a side route into Montgomery County, Maryland for a couple of years, it was kind of interesting for me to hear, oh, really? You know, I even know who those people are a little bit. So... So, yeah, it's the open source way is the biggest piece. It shouldn't be, you know, it's it's software, hardware, data, science, open educational resources. It's about the open source way at the end of the day.
0: Love it. Before we head off, because we are hitting up a time, where can people follow you, follow open at RIT, learn more about this effort going forward?
1: So at the moment, the best way to find out what's going on with open at RIT is the institutional research website, which is www.rit.edu/research/open. That's the best way to see what we're up to, and sending email to me at sj@mail.rit.edu is the best way to get in touch.
0: Excellent. And those links will be in the show notes, although they're also pretty easy to memorize, I hope, and type in right now if you're listening at your computer. Stephen, I just want to thank you so much for coming and talking about opening the RIT. It's a really interesting development. I really look forward to seeing how it goes next semester and the semester after that and after that. Looking forward to seeing really awesome open source projects be highlighted and hopefully blossom under your gardening skills oh, and we- ability
1: from your lips to God's ears, as folks in my culture say, and it will be easy to find out. I'm a release, early release, often kind of guy. We're making up as we go along and we're gonna share our flubs as well as our successes.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, Stephen. Good to have you on board.
1: Thanks, Richard.